begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this wonderful passage of Scripture, and we pray uh, that you will speak to us all. Um, not only will you open my mouth to speak, but open our ears and hearts to hear the things that you have for us, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if you are visiting, we've been uh, in a series on the book of Isaiah, um, according to the Americans, and Rolf helped us last week to understand that we have now moved into the second half of this great prophet. Um, the clear markers are that chapter 1 starts off with this very clear message of judgment, and that's where chapter 1 begins. But when we get to chapter 40, um, the beginning of a new section, it begins with this clear message of comfort and salvation and hope, which leads us really nicely into the passage we're going to have today, and I think Rolf even mentioned it in his sermon last week. Probably one of the most well-known portions of Isaiah the prophet, um, and one that we still utilize today in evangelism because it it just speaks so clearly without naming Jesus. It talks about the Christ and the Savior and who he is and what he came to do. And one of the things that I find um, really fascinating about this scripture is that there are a lot of what they call Messianic Jews, uh, Jewish Christians. It's a big movement at the moment, and... Jewish Christians who are evangelizing to their friends all over the world. And one interesting statistic that I've, I've looked up and looked into is that many people believe that there are now more Jewish, ethnically Jewish Christians living in Jerusalem today than any other time of history since the first century when the Christian church was born. Suddenly there is just this resurgence of people um, who are ethnically Jewish turning to Christ. And this passage has been used very effectively by Jewish evangelists to evangelize their family and friends. And one of the reasons for it is it is just so specific. Um, everyone knows that it is a messianic prophecy, one that speaks of the Christ, but speaks about the Christ in some very surprising and some very detailed ways. So it raises a question that we've just heard in our second Bible reading, who is this scripture speaking about? And so I've had a number of friends who are Jewish Christians, and they've spoken about how they've used this to say, hey, to my Jewish family, you still believe in the Jewish scriptures, and we still quote it from time to time. Let's look at this passage. Who is it speaking about? And I've heard uh, Jewish Christian speakers talk about the value of this. I went on the internet during the week and noticed that a lot of evangelistic sites that are set up by Jewish Christians use this as a primary passage. And what I found especially interesting is that I also found a lot of Jewish websites, not Jewish uh, Christian websites, but just Jewish websites that sort of expound the Jewish scriptures. And whenever they're dealing with this passage of scripture we just heard, they struggle to explain it. And they always mention the Christian interpretation because they said this has become a common interpretation, but we want to give you our side of the story. And just in case you're interested, the best explanation they have is who is the suffering servant? Well, it must be Israel 
herself. It's speaking about Israel herself, which doesn't make a lot of sense because clearly the passage is talking about who has believed our message, who is the one who will come to bear our sins, who will take on our iniquity. Well, it is this person, this servant, and therefore it doesn't make a lot of sense to say, well, Israel came to take on Israel's sin, and because of what Israel did, Israel had to go and pay for. But that's the best explanation because it is such a very clear passage that it doesn't leave you with a lot of other choices. So it's really fortunate that we get this one passage in the New Testament that gives us some insight into how this passage was used all the way back in the first century with a guy by the name of Philip, who is not the, uh, one of the 12 Philips. He is called Philip the Evangelist, and he gets a chance to speak to this uh, Ethiopian man. If we can go to our next slide, I just want to apologize quickly. With some of the, the major passages of the Bible, you get some really cool slides. With some of the passages that aren't as well known, you kind of go back to 70s Sunday school slides, but nonetheless, stay with me. I just want to mention that one of the things that's interesting about this is that most of the slides that I looked at have this Ethiopian man, man looking like, you know, modern-day black African. We actually don't know the ethnicity of this guy. We, we do know one of two things. He was either a Jewish convert who traveled through uh, Jerusalem and heard the Jewish scriptures and had converted because he had gone up to Jerusalem and he was reading the Jewish scriptures and he was returning home. Or it's possible because the Jews had been dispersed throughout all of the nations. This could have been an ethnically Jewish man who was now living in Ethiopia. Those are the two options. But whatever the case is, we were told in Acts 8 that he had gone up to Jerusalem to worship. He must have been a well-off man because we all have our Bibles today. It was kind of unusual for someone to be able to be carrying around their own scrolls of the scriptures, and he had these. And Philip went up next to his chariot and begins to speak to him, and he's reading the same passage we have heard read to us today. And the setup line of this whole thing comes to the, towards the end of that passage in verse 34 and 35, where this man says to Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet Isaiah talking about? Is he talking about himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. It would have been wonderful to be sitting there in that chariot and listening along. We could have all heard a great lesson on evangelism from Philip the Evangelist, but we don't have to take uh, many guesses as to the sort of things he would say because the passage is outlined so well that we can sort of go through it and we can imagine pretty well the stuff that he talked about. So, what did Philip say to this Ethiopian man? What does God have to say to us today? Well, first of all, he wanted to talk about Jesus' humility, his humble birth and his humble ministry. If we can just go to our next slide. Just to set this up, let me just remind you, you know, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed he, this suffering servant, grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He's talking about the servant's humble beginnings. Now, we can go back and see this is not some isolated 
passage of scripture, but it is now connected to the whole of the book of Isaiah because when we go right back to chapter 6, one of the earlier chapters we looked at, we were told how Israel was going to be kind of cut down like a tree, in fact, cut down twice. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste, but just as these trees leave stumps when they are cut down, the holy seed will be a stump in the land. So not only will the stump of Israel be left, Israel will survive, but this idea of the holy seed, this shoot that will come up out of very unlikely places, that goes all the way back to chapter 6. But then we go to our next slide. Towards the end of this great messianic section, in Isaiah 11, we get the same image popping up again. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, now we're getting something more specific. Jesse was David's father. This Messiah, this God, this King of God is going to come from Jesse or David's line. Now we're fast forwarding all the way to Isaiah 53. And if we go to our next slide, again. For he grew up before him like a young plant, or some translations like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. So out of the most unlikely places, this young, tender shoot will spring up. Earlier, um, when we were going through our doctrine series and we were talking about the doctrine of Jesus, if we can just go to our next slide, we, we used this slide that there was this prophecy in Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And so we're getting this picture of the greatness of the Messiah, the divinity of the Messiah. But now we get a different kind of image. If we can just go to our next slide. We're told now that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And so now you have to begin struggling with this, it seems like almost a dual identity of this person. On one hand, we're looking for someone that's going to be called the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God. But now we're also going to be told about someone who won't seem like anything. You know, you wouldn't look twice at him. There's nothing to see here, people. That is the way that he will begin. And if we go to our next slide, it goes on to talk about something else. I pick this because it's a really intriguing image for me. That comes, I don't know if you recognize it, but if you see the little star down the side, Jesus Christ Superstar, for those of you who've seen the stage play or the movie, there's actually a really wonderful scene in Jesus Christ Superstar. It, it doesn't play out quite the way the scriptures do. In fact, in Jesus Christ Superstar, few things play out the way the scriptures do. But Jesus is portrayed as a rock star. And at one stage, he's out in the middle of the desert, and he's standing on this rock, a little bit like a rock star standing on a stage. And then out of the desert starts appearing out of the dirt and out of the holes in the ground all of these lepers and the sick and people who are demon-possessed, and they start approaching the rock that Jesus is standing on and reaching out for him, just like people at a concert reach out, you know, to touch the, the rock star, because this is Jesus Christ Superstar. 
But then they begin climbing up on the rock, like climbing up on the stage. And they're reaching out and they're singing this song, you know, see my eyes, I can hardly see. You know, see my tongue, it can hardly talk. And they're crying out to Jesus, help me, Christ, help me, Christ. And slowly but surely they grab him and they pull him down and they begin to overwhelm him. And in the stage play, Jesus screams out, leave me alone, which of course Jesus never did. But what the scene portrays is something that we often don't think about in the ministry of Jesus. We think about Jesus on the cross bearing our sin. We often don't think that Jesus' whole life was a life of bearing the sin of people. When he stands outside of the grave of Lazarus and he he cries and he weeps, or when he drove out demons with a loud shout, or often before he healed someone, we're told he was filled with indignation or he was deeply moved in his spirit. Jesus walked around constantly seeing the curse that had fallen on humanity and feeling this tremendous burden and this tremendous weight. And I often think about Jesus, for those of you who might be doctors and maybe ever worked inside of a an emergency room when it's just pumping, you know, and it's casualties are coming left, right, and center. You might think, well, there's a great honor to being a doctor, but when you're running around and you're covered in blood and all kinds of other sort of things and you're just doing whatever you have to do to keep people alive, you're serving. And Jesus' whole life was this life of service where he was bearing the burden and the sin of people. And it kind of reminds us of one of the big problems that people had with Jesus in the first place. Why was he rejected by the, the religious leaders? Well, because he didn't look like anything. You mean this carpenter's son from the backwaters of Galilee? You know, w- w- these people, his, his brothers and sisters are standing here. Wh- who is Mary? Who is Joseph? Who are any of these people? You know, when the Messiah comes... He will become the, he'll be the wonderful counselor, prince of peace. This guy, he doesn't look like anything. And that's what Philip is trying to point out. Who has believed our message? He grew up like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him. There's nothing in his appearance that we would desire him. He was considered despised, rejected, like one whom people turn their back on. They can't even be bothered looking at. This also describes the Messiah and the suffering servant. And then we go on to the next part, which then very specifically talks about the sacrificial death. He was pierced for our transgressions, from verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. By his wounds we are healed. You might, this next bit might be familiar to you. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Well done. (laughs) Each of us has turned his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, you'll never forget it. You throw in a few babas. One of the things that's really interesting about the ministry of Jesus is the way that he presented himself as the good shepherd. Um, And you might remember, if we can just go to our next slide, uh, 
this story that he told about the 99 sheep, you know, who remained in the flock, but the one stray sheep. And what does the good shepherd do? Well, he goes off and searches for the lost sheep and brings that back into the fold. Isaiah says something a little bit differently here. He said, the whole hundred have gone astray. It's not just the one bad sheep, not the black sheep of the family. It's, it's the whole flock has gone astray. And the shepherd has come to save his sheep. But then we get this very ironic twist, because remember Jesus said the good shepherd will lay down his life for the sheep. And if we can go to our next slide from 53, 6, and 7. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter. You see, this is something that the Jewish people were familiar with, right? The whole center of their religious life was based on sinful people bringing their acceptable sacrifices so that it could be laid on the altar so that through the spilled blood of the perfect lamb, their own sins could be taken away. And this is what Isaiah is saying. Although here he introduces something that I went and looked around and I thought about it and you just can't find it in the Old Testament. Suddenly the atonement is made by a human being. Lots of pictures of animals being the atoning sacrifice for sin, but I can't think of anywhere else in the Old Testament that it ever speaks about a man and a human being suffering to make atonement or to provide forgiveness for human sin. This is why I think it becomes this great stumbling block. How, how does a man atone for another man's sin? He would have to be perfect. He would have to be acceptable. He would have to be something that no one else we have ever seen is. But this is what Isaiah the prophet was saying about Jesus, the sacrificial lamb. We have gone astray, but our iniquities have been laid upon him. And then finally, the last section speaks about Jesus' resurrection and his ascension and his great commission. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied by his knowledge. Um, sorry, be satisfied and by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many. And he will bear their iniquities. He will be given a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. For he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It doesn't just speak about his suffering and his death. It talks about the impact and the effect of all that he had done. If we could just go to our next slide. 
I found this, so you can see this uh, Yeshua.org. If you don't recognize the name, Yeshua is the Hebrew version of Jesus' name. It's the same word as Joshua, but it's just... And so this is one of those websites of Jewish Christians who are using the internet to evangelize. And he says, you know, it says, his name is Yeshua. He provides salvation. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. If we just go to our next slide, when we did our doctrine thing, we talked about the resurrection of Christ. And I think this is the sort of image. This suffering servant who is laid in a dark tomb, but on the third day, he rises again at dawn and he sees the light of life. But it's not just about the, you know, himself seeing the light of life. It's about the impact of his death and his resurrection, that he will be proclaimed to many. It doesn't just say to, to many Jews. It says to many. And as we've said so often, we get the hindsight of looking back after 2,000 years at what Christ has done. Us sitting here in Australia, many of us, you know, ethnically Chinese or Asian backgrounds or from the United States or, you know, from representing other peoples of the earth. And we know that there are Christians, even though we might be small, they exist in their millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions. And Christ has been proclaimed from that time because God told Isaiah, this is what will happen, and it will happen according to my will and according to my power. So what Isaiah looked forward to with faith and prophesied in faith, we get a chance to look back on and we see that this has been the case. This is what, is what Christ has done. So if we can just go to our final slide, um, you know, again, 70s and kind of lame, but it gives us great opportunity to consider that here we have Philip the evangelist explaining all these things to this Jewish convert or this ethnically Jewish man who had just finished worshiping in Jerusalem and reading the scriptures but just didn't understand what they were all about and suddenly he says because all these things had just happened he was in the generation where these things had just happened And suddenly all of these questions, well, wait a minute. How is it that this great Messiah could end up being rejected by his own people? The Messiah is not despised and rejected by his own people. He doesn't die like a criminal crucified alongside of other criminals. Philip said, oh, yeah, well, what did the prophet say? And suddenly he says, it It all makes sense. It's all happened. Who has believed our message? And the man says, I do. And I just wanted to add this as a little footnote um, to the end of this because um, last week we began our baptism uh, classes and we hope that early next year we will have um, uh, a wonderful baptism service. But I just want to remind us that this is actually how people responded back in the day. And I was thinking that Today we have this thing, you know, where people will say, I, my friend prayed the prayer. Because this, this is how you sort of publicly declare your faith. Someone says, I'm a Christian, and then you take them through and you say, well, let's pray the prayer out loud. In the first century, and I think for centuries beyond that, when someone came to believe, 
they were baptized. A and not, you know, five years later or six weeks later or whatever, on the day. <laughs> that's, that's what you did. When you made a public profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, the way that you demonstrated, I believe and I want to believe whether it was just Philip and the few servants who were walking alongside or whether it was Paul and a household, you know, and the household believed and they found some water. Whoever was there, you were baptized and that was your public profession of faith. And I just want to continue to encourage all of us that if you have become a believer, as an encouragement to yourself and as an encouragement to your church and as a testimony of what you have believed, come and talk to me because we would love to see you uh, do this. It's, it's, it's not what saves you. It is just your way of declaring publicly your faith in Jesus Christ as this Ethiopian man did 2,000 years ago. Just finally, baptism is, is one possible response, and it's a, usually a one-time response in our lives. It's, it's a way that we say, I have believed and I want to commit my life to Jesus. But we've been given this other response, and I'll speak more about this in just a moment. But as we turn to the Lord's table, I just want us to go back and reflect on Isaiah 53. Because again, this is one of those things we could say, oh, well, it's the first Sunday of the month, and so there the table set up, and there's some bread, and there's a cup. But what we're really doing is we're taking another opportunity to re reflect on what Christ has done for us. He has come into the world in humble form. He has lived the life of a servant to serve us. He has died the death that we deserved so that we wouldn't have to pay the punishment for our own sin. He has risen from the dead so that the Lord was able to say, I will not drink this cup again until I drink it with you in my Father's eternal kingdom. Through what I have done, I offer you eternal life. This is our chance to think and reflect and to celebrate. And we'll do that in a moment after we have had our song of reflection. <laughs>